Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is my colleague, Joe Healy, and we are here to preview week eight of college baseball around the country. It is a fun weekend. We have reached the midpoint of the season, uh, and with that comes uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of excitement, uh, especially as, as you can start looking towards postseason projections and, and all the rest of it. it. It all just becomes a little more real now. Everyone's into conference play. Even the last stragglers, I think, are starting this weekend. So a great time in college baseball. So we're going to get into to all of that, some of the top series this weekend. There's a top 10 showdown in Miami. Uh, you got the Bedlam series out in Oklahoma, a top 25 series in the SEC, of course. So a lot to talk about here on today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, I mentioned college baseball has reached its midpoint. I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge, though, that as we record this today, it is MLB opening day. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, just uh, you, you had minor league opening day earlier. And it's just uh, the full cornucopia of, of baseball now available to uh, to everyone. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and yet I noticed that uh, back in my old stomping grounds in the Midwest, a chance of snow on Friday. So just a little reminder that, uh, you know, still we're still a little early in the year. But uh, but yeah, halfway halfway point, things get 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 really real now. I You mentioned the last couple of conferences getting into conference play. I wrote about that briefly in three strikes. The last two stragglers basically are the Southern conference, which kind of surprises me because it is a, by de, you know, in a literal sense, a Southern conference. Um, so they're a late straggler. They're just now getting underway. And the big East, they had already had one series, but the big East also gets underway. So I would kind of, I don't want to say re previewed, but just kind of took a look at those two conferences as they started conference play in three strikes, because on one hand, we know very little about those conference races because they haven't played any games, but we also have seven weeks of results to look at in those conferences. So that's just kind of a unique situation because in most of their conferences, we have so little information when conference play starts. So I took a look at that as well. And, and I, I did mention that, you know, we, we are in a different place now, like the, the, basically the season has kicked into overdrive now and all of the stuff about, well, it's early, whether you're talking about performance team per individual performance, team performance, RPI, all of that stuff. Like now that, that phrase, I think, largely unless you want to say it's early in conference play for some of these leagues like the phrase it's early like you can just basically throw that one out the window at this point is that like the records in a rivalry series a hundred percent a hundred percent you know throw them, out, you the throw them out that's right that's exactly right well yeah it's as we get to this midpoint we've done you know we, we don't do mid-season awards or any of that because ultimately i feel like that basically just amounts to who had the best non-conference play uh, so we don't, we don't do that, but we have started spotlighting you know, last week. We did surprise teams, uh, this week, uh, we've got surprise pitchers, spoiler alert coming early next week, our surprise hitters of the first half. So, uh, some of these teams that have popped up some of these hitters and, and pitchers that have popped up, uh, are making very meaningful strides, uh, when, whether we're talking about with teams towards postseason appearances, uh, players towards, draft progress or, or for the underclassmen, just, you know, putting together uh, track records and, and seasons that, that will be honored. Uh, so it, it, you definitely can find, uh, you know, some real results at this point, like Joe said, you know, that it's not early anymore. Uh, if you, you are starting to become what your record or what your, your stats show, that's not to say that teams won't surge and some teams that surged early won't fall back, but, 
uh, this stuff is is becoming more real uh, with with every passing game. And uh, Joe, as as you start to look into that, is there anyone? And we, we didn't really talk about the surprise teams last week. Is there any team? Is there any players as, as we've started to dive into this that, that has really stood out to you? So the team thing is kind of the, the surprise teams is interesting to me because as far as major conferences go, it seems like a lot of the surprises happened in the ACC, right? So we're talking about Louisville. We're talking about North Carolina. If we had maybe compiled this list a week or two later, maybe Virginia Tech would have been in that mix. Um, we'll talk about this a little as we go on, but I, I do start to wonder if, if we're just kind of looking at basically looking in the mirror at what the ACC was last year, you know, because since doing this list, Louisville has lost a series, North Carolina lost a series. Um, but they, they did definitely weren't being on here because those were teams based on last season's results. We weren't, uh, weren't quite so sure about there's a lot of stuff on the teams list under the radar though. Um, you know, that there were, that's largely what this list focused on. You know, you've got a, Kennesaw state team that like, don't look now is like lurking in the RPI. And again, like maybe a touch early to overanalyze the RPI, but we're getting pretty close to that just being, you know, somewhat hard coded there. So, you know, that that's a team to look for, you know, and UNLV is um, leading the mountain West conference at this point, the pitchers list though, is, is the one I think that's really fascinating because we've spent so much time talking this season so far about the lack of however you want to define it, star power, proven commodities, whatever on the mound in college baseball. And while that's absolutely true, the cool part about that or the neat part about it is that someone's going to fill that void, right? Like it's not just going to be that nobody pitches well in college baseball. And some of that has been filled in by freshmen, whether you're talking about, you know, Tennessee's Chase Burns, Drew Beam, UCLA's Thatcher Hurd, Miami's Carson Ligon. There is a group of guys that have really kind of stepped into bigger roles. And that's what this list is about. And I think one of the ones that really stands out to me is, is Jake Brooks at UCLA, where that's a guy who, you know, some of these guys in this list, I guess it's maybe better to explain it this way. Like Jonathan Cannon is a guy there were expectations about, um, you know, about with mono last year, the cancel 2020 season made it to where we hadn't seen it, but he was a guy we really knew like chase Dollander stuff was always excellent. Even at Georgia Southern, right. Cooper jerpy. We thought a lot about, um, Jake Brooks was a guy, don't get me wrong, he's at UCLA, so we, we knew that he was a talented guy and had some of this in him, but when when John Savage like looked at him as a guy who could possibly lead this pitching staff at UCLA, I kind of thought like I kind of thought I'll be honest, like I kind of thought it was an indictment of that of the UCLA pitching staff this season. I thought, "Oh my, you know, that like maybe this <laughs> you know, this might really be a step back for this pitching staff in this rotation, but he's been really nothing short of excellent and exactly what the Bruins would want at the front of the rotation." So he I mean, you can make the argument for Cooper Jerpy being the most important guy on this list because of the injuries that Oregon State has faced. But if you take the injury piece out of the out of the equation, like Jake Brooks might be more important than anybody on this list because he's gone from being just kind of a guy in the bullpen last year to being one of the best starters in the Pac-12 and in the country. Yeah, that one has been a, a huge development. We talked about what Cooper Jerpy means to Oregon State, and I feel like Jake Brooks, what he means to, to UCLA. Yeah. Uh, pretty close. And, you know, when we talk about UCLA having one of the best rotations in the country, I mean, that's, that's absolutely uh, one of the big reasons why we haven't published the hitters list yet, but spoiler alert, Murphy Staley, am I saying that one right, Joe? I constantly get the two Texas Staley's uh, confused about which one, which one goes with which pronunciation. That's correct. Murphy Staley. Yeah. Murphy Staley. I mean, that one, uh, you know, he, he's a guy that has been around Austin for a really long time. 
uh, has, has been just a huge part of what they've done this year, though, and, and it hadn't been like that previously. You know, you look at this Texas offense coming into the season and you see Ivan Melendez coming back, and that's really exciting. And you think, well, maybe Trey Faltini takes a step forward, and he did, and Silas Ardwan the same. Uh, but you figured, all right, there's got to be somebody else. Uh, and it turns out it's it's Murphy Staley. You know, I thought maybe it would be Doug Hodo the third, and it's not like he's been bad, uh, you know, or, or Austin Todd in his 25th year of eligibility, like, but, but it, it's been Murphy Staley and uh, you know, he's uh, he's turned into, you know, one of the, the, the core hitters in that Texas lineup. And also, you know, Sonny Deshara um, coming to Auburn from Samford. If you look like I, at, at, at Samford, he was very good and he hit a bunch of home runs. But if you look at like the national leaderboards right now, Sonny Deshara is like at the top of just about everything. It feels like, uh, and, and where would this Auburn offense be without him? It would still be very good, but he's just, he's been phenomenal. Yeah, I have to admit, I mean, obviously I was very aware of Sonny Deshara moving to Auburn because I, you know, was doing the transfer rankings and all that kind of stuff. But I have to admit, we ranked him pretty high on our incoming transfers list, but I kind of thought he'd be um, not just a guy, but I mean, I thought he'd kind of be a guy he'd hit home runs, right? I thought maybe he'd hit 12 or 14 home runs for Auburn, but he might hit 260 as the pitching in the sec is so good. And, and I suppose he could cool off, but I think he's proven at Auburn that like, he's just a good hitter. I'm mm-hmm. sure the, the power is, is the thing. Um, and you look at his body and you're like, yeah, that, that's a guy who can hit the ball a long, long way. Um, but at this point, like, this isn't just a guy who's running into a ball once or twice a week. Like it's a guy who actually like knows what he's doing at the plate. He's walked twice as often as he's struck out. Like he's got 12 doubles. So he's not just selling out for home runs. Like he's just a good hitter. And I'm not hundred percent. Actually, I know for certain, I did not know he was that as he moved from Sanford to Auburn. No, I thought he was going to be more like Alex Terrell or yeah, 100%. Um, you know, JJ Schwartz, maybe not like JJ Schwartz, but like JJ Schwartz and his like, good but not amazing years at florida like i thought that's the kind of player auburn was getting which would have been a really good player but he's been he's been much better than that okay so those are some of the surprises again hitters list will publish early next week uh we gave you a little sneak peek there uh but you can read the pictures over at baseballamerica.com and you you can read the surprise teams there as well so we would encourage you to check that out um, along with everything else. Uh, plenty plenty to read at baseballamerica.com. Like I said, now that the minors and the majors have started as well, uh, really anything that you want baseball-wise, you can, uh, you can find over on the website. All right, Joe, let's get to these week eight previews. It is a big week around the country. Again, I mentioned there's a top 10 matchup, and so that's where we're going to start. Uh, it's happening at Mark Light Field. Virginia is headed to Miami. Uh, These teams are both in the top 10. These are two of the top ACC contenders. Uh, This is pretty much anything you would want in a a top 10 matchup. Uh, Miami has been very hot over the last month. Uh, We've certainly talked about it here. They they swept North Carolina a couple of weeks ago, and, and that was a big deal. But if you hadn't checked in at Miami since... ACC play started, or maybe you remember them losing that weird game to Boston College on opening night of ACC play. Uh, it has th- things have definitely turned uh, for the Canes, but 
Virginia is a different deal. This is the number two team in the country. This is the best, uh, I say the best offense in the ACC. And I mean, it might be. <laughs> there are some really good offenses there. But this is uh, an outstanding offense, a really good pitching staff, and uh, a, a team that has not lost a weekend series this year that, that's coming into Mark Light. And uh, so Miami is is going to have a lot on its hands this weekend, but but this is this is a huge showdown ultimately. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, just to think that if Miami wins this series, like it really does, like you're, you're talking about Miami as, as an ACC favorite and we liked the talent here and, it's, you know, any Miami team is going to be talented enough to, to do big things. But I don't know, like whether it's because we've been burned by Miami in the past or because last year they were just so inconsistent. I mean, heck, the entire ACC was. So I don't know why we just hold it against them. But um, that was kind of the vibe I got about this team coming into the season. And they've been just leaps and bounds better and more consistent and seem to be improving as the season goes on is the thing. I mean, there, there was a weird loss to BC and like also Harvard pushed them really hard and like Harvard's a good Ivy league team, but it's an Ivy league team. Right. So, um, and of course lost the series to Florida. So you kind of just thought like, Oh, this is, they're on kind of shaky ground, but they've just been so, so good once ACC play starts. And, you know, outside of, Let's talk about weird things at BC. Like Palmquist got blitzed at BC um, and has been excellent pretty much every other week. Um, so just hoping that's a blip on the radar from his standpoint, obviously. But, you know, he and Ligon have been really, really good as a one-two and a chance to be statistically the best one-two Miami's had in a while. And I know there are people listening to this shouting like McMahon and Sacconi at me. Um, but if you go back to 2019, their numbers were just okay. And now we have the benefit of seeing the full season of results there and we have half a season of results for Palmquist and, and Lingen, but with the pace they're on, like those numbers are better than what McMahon and Sacconi did. And maybe in 2020 McMahon and Sacconi would have been even better than that, but we'll never know. Right. So it's, it's a really, really good one, two punch. The offense feels like it's getting better at Miami. Yohandi Morales has been more consistent lately. Uh, feels like he's coming into his own a little bit. Dominic Patelli has been really hot lately. And I think at this point, I think it's just kind of clear. We talk about Murphy Staley at Texas being like, okay, I guess this just is kind of who he is. Like, I think we're at a point where, you know, Dom Patelli and CJ Kafus are just going to be run producers on this team, which is not what I expected with them, but that's what they've been. So um, it's a team that feels like it's playing its best baseball right now. And with Miami in past years, especially last year, it just never felt like the team ever was playing its best baseball. So that's a, a nice change for the Hurricanes. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you look at what this this Friday night matchup could be with Palmquist and Nate Savino. I mean, uh, that, that could be the best pitching matchup of the weekend. Now, Savino was not at his best a week ago, but that was the first time uh, you know, Georgia Tech got Savino, and, and that was the first time he'd really been gotten all season. So I, I'm excited to see Savino and Palmquist uh, on on Friday, and then uh, after that, I mean, but but all weekend really, I'm excited to see how Miami goes about trying to stop or slow down because you're not going to stop the Virginia offense. I mean, this is now um, the highest scoring offense in the country since Vanderbilt. Uh, held Tennessee to all of 16 runs on the weekend. <laughs> uh, Tennessee slipped out of the the number one scoring offense spot, seeded it to Virginia, which is averaging 11 runs per game. Uh, so I mean, the this Miami pitching staff certainly has been good, but they're they're going to have their hands full with the likes of 
of Teal and Geloff and Sake and, and everything that Virginia is going to throw at them this weekend. I watched a little bit of the uh, Virginia Liberty Wednesday night game um, last night as we record this. And Kyle Teal is still having the problem with his helmet flying off. Like we got to like, get, we need to get him a chin strap or something like that just seems like a problem. I saw, you know, there's a big swing and miss yesterday. I mean, in the helmet Jose just... Ramirez, like in, in the big leagues, Jose Ramirez has been in the big leagues for like 10 years now, just signed a huge deal with the guardians uh, to, to stay in Cleveland, presumably for like the life of his contract. There's a writer in Cleveland that like his whole, his shtick all season long is just to count how many times Jose Ramirez's helmet flies off. And it happens like 50 times a year. So like at some point, this is just who you are. And, and what I'm saying is, Kyle Teal is enjoying this probably. Yeah, fair enough. You know, and it's a, it's a comfort as long as the helmet's not just coming off <laughs> on its own, you know, while you're standing at the plate, I guess it's not too big of an issue, but, but yeah, um, I did, I did happen to, to notice that last night. And so with Virginia, like I'm going to make, and let me be very clear about this. I'm not predicting this. I am not trying to sow the seeds of doubt. Like I'm not, you know, being a, in internet parlance, a hater. Um, I'm just painting the picture of like, if Virginia slips back, like this is where I think it is. And I think it's on the mound, right? I mean, that's easy to say because the offense is so good. Um, The pitching numbers have been really, really good as well, but. Fourth in the country in ERA, as as you say. Indeed. And again, be very clear. I'm not predicting this. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just, you know, we're just, we're just painting pictures here. You know, on the mound, you know, is Savino getting hit a little bit last week, you know, suggesting that he could, come back a little bit. It feels a little like Brian Gursky, who was like just kind of a guy at USC for four years. He's pitched really well this year. Maybe he's making a leap, but maybe he's pitching above his head. They moved Brandon Neek out of the rotation. Now I think moving Jake Barry into the rotation maybe actually raises the ceiling of the rotation because, you know, uh, I almost saw him throw a no hitter against wake. Sure. So like that's, Oh, it would have been a team. No hitter. He did throw a no hitter, but, um, I, so I, I do think that raises the rotation, but I, I think that move, if Brandon Neek was really pitching lights out, I don't know if they necessarily make that move. Um, so if, if Virginia does kind of fall back a little bit, like that's, I think where it's going to come. And I, I mostly say that just because my confidence in the offense is, is through the roof at this point because of everything they've, they've shown. Um, but that, that is going to be the question with Virginia that the bullpen is very good. So they have that and maybe they, they can win games just that way. But um, but if they do fall back, I do think this rotation could potentially be, be got a little bit. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's interesting how they built this because, you know, after coming out of last season and maybe this was just completely misguided by us, by me, I, you know, I thought, well, Matt Wyatt, he looked really good in the NCAA tournament. Like that guy is going into the rotation next year and like he can pitch, with Savino and like, wouldn't that be a lot of fun? And Matt Wyatt has just gone back to the bullpen and and kept doing his thing. And the bullpen has been one of the real strengths here. Um, You know, and, and Matt Wyatt and Devin Ortiz, uh, you know, have been a, been a big part of that. And I, I, you know, I figured one of those guys at least would have probably, um, you know, been more, more of a rotation type. And Jay Wolfuck has been really good as a freshman. Um, out of the bullpen as well. I, they just have a lot of depth. And so, you know, we'll see what happens uh, here in terms of the rotation going forward, because I do think you're bringing up solid points here. Uh, I'm not concerned about Savino moving forward. I think Georgia Tech, it just, you know, it happens when you play Georgia Tech sometimes. Um, 
uh, but we'll 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 have to see where they go. But the 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 offense is the offense, and and Virginia is going to be able to rely on that uh, moving forward. I think the biggest question this weekend I have is, is Miami able to keep up with Virginia? Because you're probably not going to be able to slow down the who's offense completely. You know, can they do what Vanderbilt did to Tennessee last weekend? And if they can, is that then enough for their offense? We saw last weekend, it wasn't enough for Vanderbilt. Uh, Their offense couldn't keep up still because of how good Tennessee's pitching was. Well, if Virginia is held to something like that, like 16 runs on the weekend, can Miami's offense answer it? Or is Virginia's pitching staff, which again, ranks fourth in the country in ERA, is that going to be too much uh, for, for this Miami offense? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, a Tennessee-like showing for Virginia against Miami is definitely on the table, right? I mean, with everything Virginia has shown, we'd be crazy not to think that that's on the table. It seems like if Miami's winning this thing, they're going to have to, I mean, it starts with, it feels like they're going to have to get peak Palmquist on Friday. Like that feels like step one, because the other thing is they also Miami's got some really nice pieces in the bullpen. I like Andrew Walters a lot, but they also just don't because normally when a team is, is good at Virginia on the high end, you, you kind of think, okay, well the formula for the team, that's the underdog. And it's kind of weird as good as Miami's been to call them the underdog here, but that's the way it is. You, they kind of have to muddy the game up a little bit, but I don't think even muddying the game up is necessarily going to make it any better because Virginia's bullpen is so deep and so good. Right. So I think it's kind of, you have to get the Friday game. And then in one of the two, I think you're right. I think you you've got to have an offensive game where you just, you just keep coming back and, and punching back when you get punched because Virginia's offense is going to keep throwing haymakers and you've got to kind of return serve a little bit there uh, to mix metaphors. Um, but I think that's the formula for Miami. And it's just a, it feels like a very narrow path for sure. To, to use another series from last weekend as an example, you know, in the ACC, you know, up the road in Tallahassee, you saw Florida state and Notre Dame going at it. And in some ways that's a, a pretty similar thing. Notre Dame being such a solid all around team, Florida state being a little more on the mound, they lose on Friday, um, you know, in that 12 inning game, then, you know, the, they aren't able to, to grab one of the next two, but like they did make them a little more high scoring, uh, you know, especially that Sunday game, they just weren't able to ultimately make them, you know, keep up with the Notre Dame offense. Uh, but like that, that's how narrow the path was for Florida state. It felt like, like once you lost on Friday, things were, things became a little more problematic, uh, the rest of the way, it, it could be a similar situation here for Miami. And I think you're right. They do have to win on Friday. Uh, to to feel good about this series. And, you know, Palmquist can definitely do it. He has not gone deep in games terribly much this year. And I think they're going to need not only just to him have having his best stuff, I think they're going to need him to, to get some depth so that they don't have to burn through uh, their top bullpen arms on Friday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. 
What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Alrighty, let's uh, let's head out um, to the Big Twelve. Two big series in the Big Twelve this weekend. We're gonna go two for the price of one here. We got TCU at Texas. And we got Oklahoma at Oklahoma State in the Bedlam series. Uh, those two teams met uh, last Tuesday. Oklahoma got the better of Oklahoma State on a walk off in Tulsa uh, this week. And Oklahoma State will have the home field advantage in the series. Uh, very intriguing. We haven't talked much about Oklahoma State lately. They've been just kind of flying on under the radar since uh, that Gonzaga series that they got swept. Uh, but they've been playing very well again. And they're rolling, the, rolling right along uh, at the top of the Big 12. This is kind of you know, a, a, a bigger test than they faced in a few weeks. And it being a rivalry series comes with a whole lot of extra emotion, uh, a really tough stretch. We've talked about this for the Sooners as they, you know, last week uh, played Texas and Arlington and now are again facing their, their biggest, uh, their other big, big rival this weekend here uh, in Stillwater. We'll see, uh, we'll see what they have in the tank still emotionally. Uh, and then in, uh, in Austin, TCU coming off of a tough series loss to West Virginia. Texas, of course, won that series against Oklahoma. Uh, TCU has been very good in the Big 12 up until last weekend. Um, they've played more Big 12 games than anyone else, I think. Uh, so they, they've gotten a nice nice start to, to the conference play, but they really need something this weekend if they're going to hang around in the Big 12 race get into the hosting race. Uh, their RPI to this point is not great. And uh, you know, so it, it's, a, it's a big weekend for the Frogs. It's a big weekend for Texas as they look to build some momentum, especially being back uh, in Dish Falk for, you know, they, they were home one time in the last four weeks and it was against Incarnate Word. Like this is kind of a, a big deal just to, to get back to Dish Falk and, and get some home cooking and see what you can do. I'm going to, Spin a wheel real quick to decide which series to start on. Are you ready? <laughs> oh, it's Bedlam. Okay, so we're going to start with Bedlam. Um, that was great audio. I'm sure the listeners really <laughs> probably appreciated that. Uh, <laughs> I'm 80 creativity, as Mike Rooney would say. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, too. Uh, yeah, I expect a text message from Mike Rooney on that one. Um, I, I, I glad that obviously the series got brought up the Bedlam series, because I think it's like, I mean, Oklahoma state, their two series so far have been against Kansas and Kansas state. And so like they're out to a five and one start in the big 12. And I should say that's what, if you're going to be a contender, of the big 12 
that's what you need to do in your series against Kansas and Kansas state is go, you know, bare minimum four and two more like it five and one uh, to set yourself up for success there. But against a, a higher level of competition, which Oklahoma will provide, I'm, I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens here because it, it feels like Oklahoma state's walking like a little bit of a, a thin line here, you know, offensively feels fairly top heavy. Um, I, I say with a question mark at the end, you know, like Jake Thompson has, has really done a lot of heavy lifting there. The South Carolina transfer David Mindham has done a nice job. Zach Earhart's a pretty good catalyst with his ability to make things happen on the bases, but um, you know, whether it's Nolan McLean hitting for some power, but hitting 238 or Rock Reggio hitting 220 or Caden Trinkle down at 218, which has kind of forced Oklahoma State to use a lot of position players. Um, you know, you look at their stat sheet and they've had a lot of guys start, you know, a handful of games here, a handful of games there. So they're clearly trying to shuffle things and make things work. And, you know, not having Griffin Dorshing for, you know, for long stretches, he, you know, has has played a little bit since then. Maybe he adds a little bit of a spark. You know, he really has been missing since the beginning of that right state series in February returned for a game against Kansas state and for the midweek against Wichita. Um, maybe that's a little bit of a spark they need um, to get them going. Cause he was swinging the bat pretty well against Vanderbilt to open the season. Um, perhaps that's something that's a little bit helpful there, but um, so their offense feels like it's just been a, a click or two behind where we, where we thought it would be. And then on the mound starting wise, it's Justin Campbell. And then, really having a hard time getting consistent starts behind him. That's been a real uh, difficult thing for Oklahoma state this year. And it's, you know, whether it's Victor Medeiros, the Oklahoma, the uh, Miami transfer, pardon me, um, being inconsistent or Bryce Osmond, although he's been a little bit better lately, still not putting it all together despite his immense talent. That's been a real challenge. The flip side is the bullpen has been pretty good. Um, but I say all that to say, with this Oklahoma State team, I'm going to be fascinated to see what happens when they play one of the, you know, a team in the Big 12 that we consider a, a regional contender because they haven't seen that yet. And I, and I do wonder, um, you know, if maybe there's a little a little bit of them being ripe for the picking right now with the with the way they're they've I don't want to say getting away with it, but I'm just not sure what the team is hanging its hat on at this point right now. Yeah, it's uh, it just seems like they're solid. Uh, all around rather than having a bunch of standout stuff. Justin Campbell has been maybe better than I expected. Even um, he was very good last year. You know, he was an all American last year, uh, but that was mostly because he was a two-way player. Uh, if he had not been a two-way player, I don't know. Was he an all American, uh, but he has been pitching like an all American on Friday nights for them. And so I'm excited. I, I mentioned how good the Friday night showdown in Miami could be. It could also be great in Stillwater as you get Campbell against Jake Bennett, who has been one of the breakout stars on the mound of, of, of the season. Um, those two guys uh, do it very differently, uh, starting with the fact that one of them's right-handed and one of them's left-handed, but I, I just feel like they go about things differently. That, that, that could be a really fun, uh, fun matchup. And uh, from an Oklahoma perspective, Peyton Graham really seems to have locked in lately. He uh, he homered on Sunday. He homered again on Tuesday. Like Peyton Graham is doing a lot of things for Oklahoma right now. And if you're going to slow down the Sooners and and ultimately win this series, I, I think uh, stopping Peyton Graham has to be pretty high on your list if if you're Oklahoma State. So I'll be interested in uh, in what they can can draw up there in terms of uh, of a plan of attack against against Peyton Graham. 
Yeah, I think I'll take it one step further. Like, I think like Peyton Graham is really in terms of really being able to impact the baseball. Like he seems like the one guy in, in the Oklahoma lineup that can really hurt you. There are guys who are having nice seasons. Don't, don't get it twisted there. Like Blake Robertson is having a really fantastic season, you know, taking a lot of walks, you know, getting on base. He's shown some doubles power, but you know, he's not hitting the ball out of the ballpark really in this lineup you know, it's outside of Peyton Graham, like nobody's really hitting the ball out of the ballpark. So, you know, taking it one step further, if you can, if you can contain him, I think you have a really good chance of containing this Oklahoma offense, because I, I, I like the offense as a whole, but the struggle with Oklahoma, and I saw this firsthand when I saw him in Houston, you saw this opening weekend, whereas, you know, if, if it's not that they're kind of having to string three or four hits together. And maybe the Oklahoma state pitching staff, like we talked about is, is maybe not in a place where they can, prevent that kind of thing from happening. But I do think it's a pretty good start. If you can keep Peyton Graham from, from leaving the ballpark, it seems like uh, just job number one in terms of, of slowing the offense down. I, I think that's very fair. And then the other thing is if, if your offense is getting healthier uh, as, as they go here at the Oklahoma bullpen kind of got exposed. I mean, not that I don't know that anyone needed for what to happen on Sunday uh, to realize that the Oklahoma bullpen is a bit of a weak point, uh, but it again got exposed by Texas in Arlington on Sunday. Uh, and so that we talk about teams that have to stick to the script. Oklahoma is a team that has to stick to the script. They, they need this weekend to develop in a certain way. Uh, and if they're able to do that, then they have a real chance this weekend, but they, uh, they, they really need to get some length out of their rotation. And those guys have the ability to do it. I really like the rotation of, of Bennett, Samlin, and Martinez in terms of what they can do, but they have to show the consistency this weekend to do it on the road against a good hitting team. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. And that's kind of the funny thing is that as, as troublesome as the Oklahoma bullpen has been, like I actually do like in the abstract think Bennett, Sandlin, and Chaz Martinez is like objectively not bad. Like the numbers aren't the prettiest necessarily, but in terms of ability and, and, and at times the results like that, that rotation's not, not terrible. And, but it's just that, you know, they, they really have to give them quite a bit of length for them to feel pretty comfortable. And, and you look at it and, and both Martinez and Sandlin are averaging about five innings a start. And that's not necessarily going to cut it with the bullpen struggles the Sooners have had. So that is, that's kind of a fascinating thing there that you know, it hasn't really been the rotation. It's, it's been, you know, protecting leads and, and keeping teams from, from running away with things late. Let's uh, let's flip it down to Austin. Um, you know, we, uh, I, I mentioned that TCU is coming off of this tough series loss to West Virginia and that they really need this weekend. If they're going to, uh, you know, hang around in the big 12 race, get into the, the hosting race, you know, we've, we've done field of 64 projections last two weeks and I haven't had TCU hosting. And part of that is because look, the big 12 getting four hosts, it's asking kind of a lot of the conference. Uh, there are only nine teams in this league. Remember? So when you see the ACC and the SEC having all these hosts, like part of that's because they're 14 team leagues. Uh, it's a different story. The other problem is that TCU now ranks 37th in RPI. That's flatly not good enough and while yes okay louisville is is a host if you look at it right now and they're behind tcu even in rpi um you know we're projecting louisville when, when i do that i'm projecting louisville to you know finish really well in the acc right now we have and all season long we've projected tcu to be the fourth best team in the big 12 this is the weekend to change our minds 
Uh, but you know, they, uh, they are coming off of a really tough weekend and now they're on the road against what we consider to be one of the best teams in the conference. Yeah. TCU feels like, a. when I look at them, it, it feels like they are like 65% of the way to a really, really good team. Just when you look at offensively, their top four guys have been great. Tommy Sacco, David Bishop, Braden Taylor, Elijah Nunez. And within that group, you've got guys who do a lot of different things, right? Nunez on the bases, you know, Braden Taylor draws a million walks, you know, and has power and Tommy Sacco has shown more power this year. So that's a pretty dynamic group before there, but it drops off pretty precipitously after that in terms of, of what they're getting from their offense. And it's a similar deal on the mound, right? Where I think one of the most important, he was not on the breakout pitchers list. He could have been, um, is, is Riley Cornelio. I mean, he's been really, really important because he's been very, very steady in the rotation. And then especially with Austin Krobe out, um, what they've got in the rotation after him has been a little more touch and go. And while there has been some good bullpen performances, it again, feels like the pitching staff is, is pretty solid at the top, but then drops off pretty quickly after that. Um, so that's why I say that with, with TCU, it just, it feels like it's 65 to 70% of the way to a very good team. And the trouble is, you know, and I think that's enough for them to be a, a solid regional team, but if you're going to compete at the top of the big 12, you have to be a little, a little more fully formed. I think this big 12, especially there are years in the big 12, where you don't have to be better than what TCU is, but this big 12, you definitely have to be, you, you've seen what tech and what the horns and, and what the, the pokes can do. So uh, you know, TCU has yet to test themselves against those teams. This is this is the first test. And, you know, it, it's going to be a big one with Cornelio uh, going on Friday, you know, facing off against Pete Hansen. Um, you, you talk about teams that need to win on Friday if they're going to win the series. I mean, this is this is that I, I find it hard to believe that if they don't win on Friday, that they're going to be able to come back and take two games uh, back to back in Dish Falk against a Texas team that uh, you know, certainly has gone through more ups and downs than than we thought. But again, like I said, they just haven't been home much at all uh, over over the last month. And I do think that's part of where the ups and downs have been coming from. Uh, but we'll uh, we'll see because this is another I mean, they, they keep playing these big weekends. You know, Texas hasn't had much of a break over the last month either. Uh, so we'll we'll see what they have in the tank this weekend. But I, I, I do like their chances this weekend at home. We've talked a lot about Texas, so I'll, uh, I was kind of looking for some things that we hadn't necessarily touched on with the Longhorns because we, we have talked about them so much just in general, but even the last few weeks. Um, but I think they've gotten exactly what they've wanted out of uh, Skylar Messinger, and I've, I found out that I've been mispronouncing his name when I watched a, a game on LHN the other day. It's a Messinger and not Messenger. Um, so there's that, but... I mean, you can nitpick his game a little bit. You'd like him to walk a little more, maybe, you know, only six walks so far, but he's been really hot lately. He's now hitting 370. Um, he's only made one error at third base. Uh, he's just been a really good addition to the lineup. I think that's exactly what they wanted from him. Someone who's going to pick it really well at third base. And I think they felt like they thought he'd be solid offensively, but I almost, I feel like they thought that was just kind of gravy. It was really just a good defensive third baseman. Who's going to be a, a mature hitter you know, having already spent four years in the big 12 at Kansas. Um, and he's been probably that and more honestly for what they expected. So when we started to talk a couple weeks ago about who is it 
out around Melendez, right? And, and Staley has stepped up and, and Trey Faltini's hitting for more power. And, and Eric Kennedy's been solid just about all year. But Messinger's in that mix as well, especially with the way he's hit over the last few weeks. Aside, Texas has some of the sneakiest, most difficult pronunciations in the country. Mm. You've got mm-hmm. Staley and Steele. You've got Messinger. Uh, you got Faltini. I mean, there, there are a lot of, there are Dwan. Uh, there are a lot of ones that'll sneak up on you there. No doubt. Yeah. I, I definitely mispronounced Trey Faltini, like at least halfway into his first season as Faltine. Um, that, that was definitely a, definitely a thing. Yeah, I absolutely. guess, I mean, his first season was 2020. So I guess it probably leaked into last year that I was still <laughs> calling him Faltine. So anyway. That'll, uh, if you're a broadcaster or a podcaster, you gotta, you gotta check the Texas pronunciation guide. That is for sure. Shout out the SIDs who do that, by the way, because like I, I do as someone who has anxiety about mispronouncing, uh, names, um, and side note, if you're a listener and you hear us butcher like a player on your team's name, like, look, we can't watch every game out there. So like, there are guys who just, and even when you're watching a game, you don't always hear the name said. Um, there are a lot of guys whose names we've just read and not said, if we butcher a guy on your team's name, like feel free to tweet at us. I mean, be nice about it, but like, you know, feel free to tweet at us, let us know, but shout out the SIDs who do the pronunciation guides, because those are extremely, extremely helpful. And, uh, I always look for them if I have a question about someone's name and they're not always in there, but I appreciate the ones who do it. If you're looking for us on Twitter, I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And again, be nice about it. Yes, absolutely. Just That's just a that general clear. rule. Got to yeah, just, just, don't just be nice, to, you know? Yeah. Most people don't seem to follow that, but yeah, I mean, just especially on Twitter, but, but yes, if you're going to correct us on pronunciations, like, uh, you know, we appreciate the information, but you know, don't be a jerk. All righty. Let's head to the planes. Uh, this series admittedly very much uh, snuck up on me. Uh, if if you had told me a month ago that we were going to spend some time talking about Auburn and Vanderbilt, I would have been very surprised. And yet here we are. It's a top 25 showdown. Vanderbilt is headed to Auburn. And uh, this, is, this is a really big series for both teams. You have Auburn coming off back-to-back road series wins in the SEC. They went out and they won a series at AM. And then last weekend, they won a series at LSU. Uh, opening weekend of SEC play, they lost to, at home to Ole Miss. This is them going back home now and getting another chance against one of the better teams in the conference, that being Vanderbilt. Now, Vanderbilt, as we talked about, is an enigma. They have lost back-to-back SEC series for the first time since 2018, having lost on the road at South Carolina, and then last weekend getting swept at home by Tennessee. Now, Tennessee is Tennessee, and clearly they're getting a lot of teams this year. They got Ole Miss. Uh, They got everyone they played. They won losses to Texas on a neutral. Um, But Vanderbilt still is now dealing with some – they've lost five straight SEC games. And – they're on the road against a really tricky opponent. We talked about what Sonny Deshara has brought to this Auburn offense. Uh, the Auburn pitching staff has been pretty solid as well, uh, but this is definitely a more of an offensive weekend. And so for the second week in a row, Vanderbilt's pitching staff is going to be asked to contain a difficult offense uh, while their, their lineup tries to keep pace. And uh, I am fascinated to see how this one turns out. Yeah, it's just if you're if, if you want to believe in the the most positive um, iteration of what Vanderbilt can be, this is a series that you're looking for them to go out and really kind of impose their will. 
which, you know, doesn't have to be an indictment of Auburn, you know, because if we think Vanderbilt is as good as they could possibly be, like that's the kind of thing they would do in this series, because I think we like Auburn as a, as a good team, but not necessarily a great team. Right. And so I think that if you want to believe in that degree to Vanderbilt, like that's what you're, what you're looking for here. I specifically think there's an opportunity for them, you know, offensively, I think is, is both sides are interesting. Right. But I'm, I'm looking at the Vanderbilt offense and saying, okay, like we know those Tennessee pitchers are really good. Like just much like the offense, right? I mean, the Tennessee pitchers are really, really good. They held you to four runs. Um, Auburn's pitchers aren't that necessarily. Like, can can you kind of are you able to put up runs in bunches against this Auburn pitching staff? Because it it should be like we talked about last week. The Vanderbilt offense should be one that is multiple and can score on you at will and can make your life difficult with guys with athleticism and speed on the bases and run the ball out of the ballpark and, and all of that. And we just didn't see it last weekend. So can, can they do it against Auburn? And if they can't, then maybe we start asking some bigger questions about the offense. Cause to this point, you and I have been pretty willing to shrug our shoulders a little bit. Um, but if it, if those things don't happen this weekend, I think that now is when we really start asking some, some big picture questions about, about the Commodores in that way. This is uh, a, a big spot for Auburn. Uh, you know, winning on the road at AM and LSU is a really big deal, it should be said. Uh, Auburn has actually played really well away from home this season. They haven't done it a ton, but, you know, they won those two series. They went two and one on opening weekend in Arlington against quality competition there. Um, they uh, do have two home series losses, though. They, they lost Ole Miss, and no shame in that. They went one and two on the weekend, but they also lost a home series to Middle Tennessee State. Um, that weekend when the Ivy league, uh, you know, started its season and there were a bunch of upsets, you know, Ivy league teams won a bunch of games around the country. Auburn was part of that. Like Gale got them once. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why this team doesn't play better on the plains. Uh, Plainsman park is a, a great, <laughs> uh, venue. Auburn fans are going to be very into this one. I think it's big, uh, for them to have this at home to not have to go to Nashville, but, I, again, at the same time, I mean, they've played so well away from home right now that, um, you know, maybe maybe there is something to that. But I, 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 I think this is a huge opportunity for Auburn. I think that some people are looking at them skeptically right now. I mean, they're in the top 25. They are number 25. And we debated that a lot last week about whether Auburn was number 25 or not. And ultimately, we, we put them in. And this is their their opportunity to sh- say that um, we are, we, we are better than what we were last year. I mean, I think that is that much is clear now, but not, we're not going to be fighting for, to get into regionals. We're going to be fighting, like, maybe can we host, you know, that that's what Auburn is, is trying to prove this weekend. And, uh, so it, it becomes a really big series for them and it's a really big series for their pitching staff because at times they have looked really good this year. And again, this Vanderbilt offense, we think has the ability to be really good, uh, you know, we know that individual pieces like Dominic Keegan and Enrique Bradfield, uh, that they're really good, but this has also been an offense that has been shown to be a little top heavy. And maybe if you can minimize the amount of time Bradfield gets on base, uh, if you can find a way to minimize Keegan, like the, will the lineup have enough depth to overcome that? So, uh, th- there's a way to beat it. And now can Auburn's pitching staff, uh, can they find the right ways to attack it? Yeah, you. Uh, I think great point there by you on on Auburn raising the floor. Like it feels like their floor is now 
you know, Hey, we're, we're a regional team, you know? Um, and I think the sec this year is going to be particularly difficult. I think we've seen that with Missouri having been frisky so far and, and Texas A&M, a completely rebuilt team having been frisky so far. So anything can happen, but I do think Auburn has established a pretty solid floor here on the mound. I think it was a, a big development last weekend for Auburn that Joseph Gonzalez was back on the weekend, pitched well. I mean, he gave up some hits, but pitched pretty well against a good LSU offense. I think that increases the it's a, obviously a talented guy. You know, that that kind of raises the ceiling for what their pitching staff can do if he's able to do something similar against Vanderbilt. It gives them a little bit more depth now that he's he's back in that role. So um big opportunity certainly for Auburn. And I, I would warn people too, you know, Vanderbilt winning this series. Uh, does not necessarily mean Auburn Auburn fraudulent here. I mean, what they've done has been has been of value, and I, I do think it the, the floor they've established is very very real. Um, it could just be that Vanderbilt is the better team, which which we think it think it is. Um, it's just been a team that's kind of underachieved to this point of the season. I mean, look, as long as Auburn doesn't get swept this weekend, they are guaranteed to be 500 in the SEC through four weekends. That's a really yeah. good place to be, especially when you consider uh, where Auburn was a year ago. Yeah. All right, Joe, let's uh, go back to the ACC. Uh, We've got North Carolina going to Louisville. This is a top 25 matchup, but it is maybe a little less uh, exciting than it would have been a week ago. Uh, UNC coming off of a really tough week uh, overall, I feel like. Uh, They lost a series last weekend to Virginia Tech. They also, I guess two weeks ago, they they were swept at Miami. And then on Tuesday, or sorry, it was on Wednesday night, Uh, Last night, they got blitzed by South Carolina in Charlotte. So North Carolina is now fighting it pretty hard. Louisville is coming off of a series loss at Pitt. Um, They did not play in midweek. Their series or their game uh, against Kentucky was rained out. So they haven't played since that that series loss to Pitt. But uh, two teams, obviously looking for a result this weekend. One of them is going to come out of this weekend feeling a whole lot better about themselves. Uh, And this is, it's not a must win for North Carolina, but it's also not, not a must win for the Tar Heels. It feels like. Yeah. It it, it feels like North Carolina is in a position where now they have to, well, let's be, let's be real. They don't have to prove anything to us in a real sense, but uh, I mean that they, they do, they are in a position where, the onus is on them to show us that this is not just the exact same situation they were in last year, right? Where, you know, they beat at the time, a top five Virginia team first weekend of ACC play. They have a couple of other impressive results after that. And then they kind of come back to the pack and they end up just being a kind of pretty good ACC team that ends up in a regional. Like so far this season, they followed a pretty similar path and, you know, you can look at some individual results too, whether it's, you know, he's still having an, an exceptional year, but Johnny Castagnazzi has cooled off. Vance Honeycutt, the freshman, has cooled off. Alberto Osuna, kind of speaking of guys who remind one of Alex Terrell, like seven home runs, but hitting 231 with a, a relatively high strikeout rate. Um, you know, the, the rotation hasn't necessarily gotten the quality length you would want. The bullpen seems better. Like I'll, I'll give them that. Like, it does seem like this bullpen is a strength. Um, it's the best, the best thing on the team potentially. Yeah, no doubt about that. So um, anyway, I, I, they're just in a position where I'm starting to become dubious of, is this team actually 
in terms of results, fundamentally, it's built a little different, but is it yeah, fundamentally built very different? I, I can't say anymore. Like if they don't win with Austin love, they're like, they're, <laughs> they're, they're a below 500 team without him. Uh, you know, and they're, they're so much better with Austin love on the mountain. They don't have a Friday starter like that. They are built to just get the ball to the bullpen and let them do their thing. And um, you know, they're that, that, that had been the, the path, but they've uh, the pitching, Last week, I mean, Virginia Tech is a really good offense. Uh, they really they really fought it last weekend against Virginia Tech and then South Carolina again. It's a midweek game. Weird things happen. Uh, but 15 runs, even in uh, an exceptional hitters park that Charlotte is, that's uh, it, they're, they're taking some some hits right now. And we'll we'll see because this is a good Louisville offense. You know, you're going to have to run up against Ben Metzger and Christian Napsik this weekend, two guys that have been outstanding so far this season. There's depth, there's speed on the bases. Like, Louisville's going to put pressure on you. How are you going to react? Um, and can you break out of this, this midseason swoon? Yeah, the Louisville, I mean, I have, and it's easy to say because they're seven and two in the ACC. And, and you know, we, there are a lot of reasons why it's easy to say, but I'm a lot more confident that Louisville is, is just a much improved team over what we saw last year. You can point to, any number of things that I think one of the most overlooked things is that how much steadier their starting rotation is this year than last year. And it's not a rotation that's going to like set the world on fire and get people like excited, but you know, Jared Poland and Riley Phillips and Tate Keener have all been really solid and are giving them something that they just did not get last year, which is, Hey, three day every game of the weekend, we know we're going to get something from our starting pitcher. Um, that's been a huge development and has allowed there to be a little less pressure on the bullpen. So, um, you know, and, but, you know, in the bullpen, by the way, like, you know, Michael Prosecchi has taken a step forward. So that's also a positive there and a, a, a way in which I think that there, there have been, has been some improvement. What has not been any different from what I saw, you know, opening weekend is one of the things I like about this offense is there is some star power here. Like, I don't want to take anything away from, from Metzinger and his 12 home runs or Christian Napchik and, you know, kind of the unique ability he brings to the table, but I look more at the depth of this offense and just think that it's an offense that is pretty good one through nine and is, doesn't really provide any sort of breaks. And that was the one thing I could say coming out of opening weekend when I saw them in Tampa was that I actually wasn't sure if there was a guy who was going to be doing what Ben Metzinger is doing right now or Christian Napchik is doing right now or heck, Jack Payton hitting 400 still. I wasn't sure of that. I was pretty sure, though, that the floor for this offense is pretty high and it's going to be pretty difficult one through nine because they are getting something from everybody. I mean, Levi Usher is only hitting 250, but he's got 17 stolen bases, you know, 17 for 17. Um, so it's, it is kind of a lineup that doesn't allow you to, to just kind of game plan around a handful of guys. You have to pitch all nine guys and that's, that's huge. So even if some of these hitters that are having magnificent years come back to the pack a little bit, I, I, I think this Louisville offense is still going to be, a really, really good one within the ACC and is the biggest reason why I, why I do think like, okay, this, this Cardinals team is markedly better than the one we saw last year, even as they lose a series to Pitt and we start to kind of raise an eyebrow at it. I'm actually, I'm actually pretty confident that will just kind of end up being something that we look at and go, yeah, that was weird. Um, but they bounce back from it. And that's kind of what I look for, look for them to start doing this weekend. The ACC this year um, looks to be incredibly bunched up. Whoever wins the showdown in Coral Gables this weekend is going to emerge as, as the favorite uh, in that division. 
Louisville has a chance this weekend to really put a stamp on themselves as being the clear favorite in their division. Um, but beyond that, you know, some of the cream is rising right now. We'll see, like, is Notre Dame back on the upswing enough to, to rise above? Uh, can the loser in Coral Gables this weekend recover and remain above the rest of that division? But if you get sucked down into the middle of this conference right now, uh, it is a dogfight in there. Uh, you know, Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, uh, Wake Forest, Florida State is now about 500. We'll see if they can push back up after what happened last weekend uh, against Florida State, North Carolina. These teams are all sitting right around 500 in the league, NC State. And uh, how many of them can get to regionals? I mean, they're, they're, you're not going to get more than 10 teams from this league into regionals. Like, it's just not happening. Um, I, I am pretty confident that, that it's not happening this year. Uh, 11 teams has never been done before. It just, it seems like something that, that the committee is, is going to have to look really hard at if they were ever going to do it. And I just don't think that this is the way that the ACC needs to be breaking. If you're looking to get 11 teams into regionals. So teams are, they're really fighting for it in, in the middle of this pack here. And so if you're North Carolina, if you're Louisville, if you're any of these teams doing anything you can to stay above that, that fray, uh, is a big deal here because as we get into the second half of the season, those teams that are, you know, fighting to stay around 500 in the ACC, uh, it's going to be hard week after hard week after hard week. And just mentally, it's, it's going to be a real grind. And um, there, there's not going to be a ton of margin for error for those teams. So I, I think, you know, in the next couple of weeks, you know, putting some wins together if you're an ACC team is, is going to be really significant as, as you look to, to be able to breathe a little bit uh, in the, in the stretch run in this conference. Yeah. There, there's UNC is not alone in this conference in terms of teams that are in a position where it's like, okay, show me that last year, like we're not just doing a, a repeat of last year, right. Where on both on both the good and bad side, you know, cause I think Virginia tech is in a similar place. Now they got off to a hotter start last year, but seems like that team could be fairly similar. Again, Pitt got off to a hotter hotter start last year, but I think they've shown at a bare minimum with the series win against Louisville. Like they're pretty good, but are they better than they were last year? Um, you know, on the good side of the ledger, Duke is off to a similar start than they did last year, and we saw how that ended. You know, Georgia Tech has all of the same pros and cons of their team. I mean, it's it's largely the the same team in terms of hey, they can score runs on anybody, but they're also going to give up runs to just about anybody. Um, so NC State dug themselves a hole last NC, year. Right. NC State's digging their way out again. This year, like. Yeah. I mean, we can point to some things that are that are definitely different about last year's ACC, but it it in a lot of places looks quite a bit like last year's ACC, I gotta be honest. Yeah, I mean, I I last year again, I mean it was 12 weeks, but again, it was a dogfight in the middle. A lot of those teams, it was just fighting to the middle. And um, you know, one of the big differences is that Virginia uh, raced out instead of digging themselves a massive hole. Um, and that gives the ACC right now a real talisman uh, at the top of the, the rankings, near the top of RPI. Um, and, and I think that does materially change some things for the conference, that they're there and nobody's doubting them the way that team, uh, folks were doubting Notre Dame a year ago. Um, and there are three teams in the top 10. Like that is a difference that RPI is 
more in the ACC's favor this year, but there are a lot of teams that are probably going to be, uh, you know, right now look like they could hang around the bubble and uh, we'll just have to see how this race shakes out. And uh, that'll be one of the, one of the thrills of the second half is, is seeing, uh, you know, how the, the ACC teams, uh, which ones rise and which ones fall and, and, and who is able to, uh, to make the tournament field. All right, Joe, that's, uh, those are the, the headlining series for the weekend. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the under the radar ones. There are a lot of them. Uh, I know that you have a big one picked out in the Sun Belt, but there's there's more than that around the country. Yeah, not a bad week for under the radar series if you're looking for something a little more on the hipster end of the scale. Um, so I'll go through a few of those real quick before we get to the the series. We'll take a longer look at here. Uh, Davidson visiting VCU. Um, you know, VCU kind of the the team that has run the A10 recently. Davidson always a team that seems like they have the talent to do so the last several years haven't really been in the mix this year. They were off to an incredible start in non-conference 22 and five. That should be an interesting series and the big South USC upstate and Campbell uh, top two teams in that conference. Campbell was a team that obviously was an at-large team last year, had the talent to in the schedule, frankly, to be that again this year, they're not going to be that. I don't think unless they really rip something off in the big South, um, still a very talented team though. And I think that's a, a good matchup in that conference, a pin at Harvard, two best teams in the Ivy league. Um, two teams that played well in non-conference. We talked a little about that. So that should be a good one. Fairfield and Ryder top two teams in the Metro Atlantic, uh, Fairfield is on their way to, uh, well, they've already taken a loss. So I guess they can't completely replicate, uh, last season's regular season, but they are on the way to, uh, being the class of the Metro Atlantic again, Nevada at UNLV. UNLV out to a, uh, I believe it's an 11 and one start in the mountain West. If they're going to get slowed down, it feels like this weekend is a chance for that because Nevada is talented defending champions there. They are in second place in that conference. And also in the big East, uh, Georgetown at Creighton. Um, I bring this one up. I mean, UConn is, is obviously the, the favorite in that league, but you know, Creighton after an 0 four start is playing better. They look like maybe they're the, the, the second team in that mix. Georgetown also, first of all, they've not played a good schedule. Let's let's be upfront about it. However, uh, they are playing better really than they have in years at this point. And I think Georgetown has to be taken seriously as at least a team that's going to be feisty in Big East play. Um, so I think this is a really good test for them in Omaha at uh, the newly minted Charles Schwab Stadium. Um, I think it's a good test for Georgetown to see how far yeah. along they actually are. Yeah, or are you, you in Charles Schwab? Yeah. Yeah. Or is it, is it park? Charles? Like no, it's park. field. I think it's, I don't know. I think it's, I, I think it's field. Okay. I will talk. If you want to look that up, I will talk. You can uh, feel free to, to jump back in. If uh, it is if field. Find- uh, so the, the, I, I, the don't overlook Xavier. Uh, but I think your top three teams in the big East uh, are UConn, Creighton and Xavier. And then you're fighting for that fourth spot in the big East tournament. And look, Georgetown making that, would be a massive deal for this program, especially in Edwin Thompson's second season. They just haven't had that kind of success ever in the Big East. Um, they won a series at Villanova la- or against Villanova last weekend to open Big East play. Um, you know, I don't expect them to go to Creighton and win, especially the way Georgetown plays. They hit a ton of home runs this season, and we all know how hard it can be to hit home runs uh, at TD Ameritrade. Now Charles Schwab. Uh, in the summer, much less the first weekend of or the second weekend of April. Uh, but 
if uh, if they can get a result this weekend, that'd be that'd be a really big deal. But even so, like this is a team that could well be the uh, making the, the biggest tournament, which again would be a, a big step forward for for the Hoyas. I mean, this feels like a an off season topic at some point, but just at this point, it, it seems pretty clear Georgetown is going to have one of its better seasons it's had in a, a long, long time. I mean, it it hasn't finished over five hundred since like nineteen eighty six, um, and I don't know if it makes it more or less Im- impressive. I guess that it's not like they're also always going like 11 and 40. Like there are a lot of like 25 and 28 seasons in there. Uh, so they're always pretty close or often pretty close. They just can't quite get over the hump. So, but it is an off season topic. I think worth diving into it at some point around, around what theme I'm not sure, but just the idea of, you know, there are obviously reasons why Georgetown baseball has, has never been a factor in the big East, but you know, there are also a lot of things that are working for that program um, that you think would make him selling points. And I think maybe Edwin Thompson is on the path to exploiting those. And I mean that in a good way um, in, in making that program more competitive, but it is one of the great stumpers in college baseball that the Georgetown, a very known brand in college athletics, in academia, you know, in a big city uh, has never accidentally gotten to a regional, you know, just like kind of fallen bass backwards into having a good week at the Big East tournament. And they, you know, they end up in a regional that is, has literally never happened. And, um, so, you know, maybe if they keep this up, it's something we talk about a little in the off season, just kind of that kind of, that kind of stuff anyway. Um, okay. So my series that we will dive a little more into is Georgia Southern at Texas state. Uh, first of all, just on its face, I mean, it's a, obviously two contenders in the Sunbelt conference. It is also an important RPI series. I just pulled it up here to make sure I have the most up-to-date information. Texas State sitting at 41. Georgia Southern up a spot over last night when I originally wrote it down. Uh, 24 in the RPI. Georgia Southern being on the road in this series means if Georgia Southern wins this series, that's probably a huge RPI bump there um, and could really help them solidify a spot of like a team that's going to have to crater to not make a regional, frankly. Um Part of the reason I bring this series up is because I was I saw Texas State last weekend. We didn't get much of a chance to talk about it because they played Appalachian State, which is not one of the better teams in the Sun Belt. So there just wasn't a lot from a series standpoint to to talk about there. But um, it's obviously a good team. We have them ranked. We've had them ranked for several weeks. You know, they showed what they can do with a series win against Arizona. I think what sets them apart in the Sun Belt is their pitching depth whether you're talking about Levi Wells, the Texas tech transfer, who was, as you can read on the site right now, one of the 10 breakout pitchers I highlighted, his numbers have just been incredible. But even if you move beyond him, Zeke Wood, who's been starting on Fridays has been really, really good. And his stuff is not quite Levi Wells good, but it's, it's good. They've got a couple of really good shutdown relievers. Tristan Stivers is the one you've probably heard of. He's been kind of, um, I don't know if he's actually been on pitching ninja, but like he is kind of one of those pitching ninja darling guys because of his slider being pretty nasty. Uh, so he's a guy you've probably heard of, but Tristan Dixon is another reliever who's having a really good year. So I think that sets them apart in the, in the Sunbelt, the Sunbelt oftentimes is a pretty offensive league is a little bit lighter on pitching, except for a few programs who, who do that. Well, looking at you, South Alabama, um, we can have a conversation later once we get there about whether or not they do have the pitching depth to actually win a regional because that tends to be what keeps teams from conferences like this from doing that. But in, in the grand scheme of the Sun Belt, they are in a really good, really good position there. Um, you know, 
my favorite guy offensively for them has been McLean, who's kind of a an athletic, stocky, strong outfielder who plays a little center, a little left. He's got some juice in his bat. Um, you know, he he's um, you know, he's uh my, my favorite guy offensively just to kind of watch because he's he's got some some energy and some bounce to him. Um, so, but it's, it's a good offense overall, Dalton Sheffield, obviously John Wuthrich. I mean, those are just old guys who have been in that lineup lineup forever. So I, I think it's a Texas state's a team that, um, has a lot of things is in a position and having a lot of things going for it to really take advantage of, of this season where they're older, they've got the pitching depth. Um, it's a good season in the Sun Belt in terms of the RPI and the quality of the teams. I think a lot of things are coming together to allow them to have the kind of season they've had. So Georgia Southern, six and three in the Sun Belt, eighteen and ten overall. Uh, I don't want to say that they need this weekend. Uh, it's a really tough road series. It's this they've played on the road three times. Uh, this will be their third road series in conference play already. Three out of four weekends. I don't know who. I don't know who they made mad the conference office to draw that, but um, they already have three series losses this year. They uh, got swept opening weekend to Tennessee. Okay, moving on. They then lost at home to UCF, and they lost last weekend at Louisiana uh, down there in Cajun country. Those are the best series they have played to this point. They're all losses. They, I don't, I don't, not here to say they need to prove anything to anyone, uh, but, you know, things aren't getting terribly easier for them. Uh, from here, Texas State is obviously a really, really good team. We again, they're they're the ranked team in the Sun Belt, and all the rest of it. Uh, but then they go home to play Georgia State, which is suddenly surging uh, at South Al, which uh, you know USA is the, the the reigning champs in the Sun Belt. Home to Coastal, home to Troy, two of the better teams in the conference. Before finally uh, Little Rock and Arlington to close out the season. My point is, Georgia Southern cannot afford to just keep skating by beating the teams that they're supposed to beat and losing to teams that maybe they should be losing to and keep this RPI, I don't think. Um, and certainly th that's not going to be looked at well in the committee room ultimately. So they need to go out and grab something. And this would be a great opportunity to do it and to shut people like me up that are sitting here wondering like, how real is Georgia Southern? Um, they, uh, they have a, a golden opportunity in front of them this weekend. Maybe you would wish it would be at home, but this is, this is a chance to say, no, like really take us seriously in the Sunbelt race. Uh, we're, we're here to stay in a conference that looks like it can run pretty deep this year. Yeah. I mean, the, we will learn a lot if, if Texas state wins the series, um, now if they get swept, I think we, I don't want to say we'd say like, that's a wrap, but like, that would be tough for Georgia Southern. Right. Cause then, then you start to get into a situation where even if the RPI is good, like, are you going to finish fifth in the Sun Belt? Um, because that could happen, especially if they take on a sweep and they're sitting at six and six are, is the committee, you know, the, the, the um, uh, advisory committees, are they going to go? Yeah, this team is, is probably not as good as the RPI would suggest. They played a good schedule, you know? Um, but it will be fascinating if Texas state wins the series, but doesn't sweep it. What does that do to Georgia Southern's RPI? And does it kind of keep them in the mix? Because I think that'll, that'll give us some, some tea leaves to kind of look at as to how, how buoyant is their, their RPI figure really 
I thought you were going to call them a little bit. I thought you were going to start off. I, I thought you were going to call them computer trickers. I mean, I, like, I don't think they're computer trickers. And here's why. Because they do have wins against Tech and UGA. And they've played this incredibly difficult schedule. And they did beat UCF once, too. And, um, you know, Jacksonville is a solid team, I think. And they have a win against them. They have a win against Mercer. Like, they have these isolated wins. They just don't have, like, I don't know. Can you build your entire resume in midweeks and not getting swept by teams? Like, to me, I would say no, but also maybe you can. I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it will be a fascinating resume if, if, it, if they stay in the mix all season long where um, the old, you know, there's, there's, I have like a little kernel of an idea and maybe me saying it out loud on the podcast will like motivate me to do it, but it's just hard because the data is kind of all over the place and I have to corral the data, but it's just for mid-major at larges, what do the midweek schedules look like? And can you build, can you build basically an entire resume that gets you in off of midweek wins? Um, you know, I, I think it's maybe part of a larger project. I thought about like trying to figure out basically of the last few years, like what is the mean median and mode uh, or at least the mean and median RPI of teams you play in midweeks to try to figure out how important is midweek scheduling and then break that out by conference. So I think there's some ideas there. Maybe this will motivate me to, to just to devote a little more time to it, to really figuring it out. Because I think this is a, this is the kind of team that would be fascinating for that because at this point you're right. I mean, it's, you know, wins against Georgia tech and Georgia and, you know, Mercer to some degree <laughs> that are propping them up a little bit uh, in, in that regard. I'm also willing and because the fact is they have no bad losses. That that yeah, is the other thing right, that's right. happening here. I guess they lost one game at App. Like that's their worst loss. And App, by the way, has a pretty decent RPI, and it was yeah. on the road anyway. They have no bad losses. Yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing too is like when you when we talk about on field, the numbers don't necessarily look great on this stat sheet. And I'm willing to allow that. We talked about how it's not early anymore, and that's true. But I, but I am willing to kind of give them a little bit of a caveat if they've played 10 games against, you know, Tennessee, UCF, Georgia, and Georgia Tech. And that can maybe do a little bit of a number on your numbers. That being said, though, to just talk about their on-field stuff briefly, like on the mound, they've got Ty Fisher, who has been has been great when he's been on the mound. It looks like he, he maybe missed a, a start or two. But um, the numbers are really good for him when he's been on the mound. But outside of him, you know, and you don't even have to – look at like a minimum number of innings. They don't have any pitcher period with an ERA under three and a half other than Ty Fisher, whose ERA is 157. Offensively, they've got some guys who are having nice years, but they're still kind of waiting on a couple of guys who are proven. Christian Avant, Parker Beaterer, those were guys who were a big part of the offense last year. They're still kind of waiting on those guys to to come around to help out Jarrett Brown and Noah Searcy and Jason Swan and Noah Ledford to, to some degree there. Um but on both sides, it does feel a little bit like a team that's kind of that's kind of top heavy has been leaning heavily on a small handful of guys, and I, I think this, to your point, I will also stop short of saying must win necessarily. But but look, if if they're going to be really serious about making a regional, it would behoove them to, to come out and play really well this weekend. I thought this team was going to be a little more pitching. I thought they would pitch better than they have to this point. I, I thought they were going to have to rely a little bit more on that uh, than their offense. Their offense to this point has been the the better area. Uh, but yeah, this is this is a big weekend for them going on the road to Texas State. Um, and uh, look, Texas State isn't unbeatable, but nobody has won a series against them yet, and that includes Arizona. Um, and that was in Tucson. So tall task, uh, but a, a big 
a big chance for both of these teams. This would be, uh, you know, kind of a, a chance to continue to separate if you're Texas State. And again, if you're Georgia Southern, this is a chance to really uh, put a flag down and say that we are we are going to be involved in this all season long. Uh, but the Sun Belt continues to be one of the best um, conferences outside the big five, six, whatever you define as major conferences in college baseball, the Sun Belt currently outside of them. Maybe next year we can talk about them being a part of major conferences. But until then, they this year, they're they're getting a head start on uh, on being a conference absolutely worth worth watching in the second half of the season. And it starts this weekend in San Marcos. That's going to do it for us today here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Make sure you are subscribed to the Baseball America podcast on your favorite podcasting app. We come at you twice a week during the season uh, on Thursdays, previewing the weekend and on Mondays, recapping the weekend that was. And so we will be back here on Monday. uh, So make sure you are subscribed, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, hit the subscribe, hit the follow button. And uh, you'll you'll get another dose of us on Monday, recapping uh, everything around the country. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA, and uh, we'll have plenty of updates and observations and analysis throughout the weekend there. And you can read everything over at baseballamerica.com. All right, Joe, uh, that'll do it for us. Thank you all for listening. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time.